Hello, and welcome to Drug Fix, the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith, senior editor Kathy Kelly, and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Today is September 30th, 2022. The last week of the third quarter was highlighted by two big pieces of news related to two severe diseases desperately needing treatments. The first was the FDA approval of the ALS treatment Relivrio, which had been known as AMX0035. Our colleague Sue Sutter put together a really nice package on the approval, three stories, including a timeline of major events for this product. And that is really warranted because this product has a long history. In approving the treatment, the FDA decided that it did not need to wait for the results of the ongoing Phoenix trial before making a decision. The agency relied on one positive phase two trial, along with confirmatory evidence of long-term survival in the study's open label extension. The FDA decided to use its regulatory flexibility, even though reviewers acknowledged some uncertainty remains about Relivrio's effectiveness, they ultimately decided benefits outweigh the risks. At the end of the day, after an advisory committee supported approval, its second attempt, by the way, this decision was not really a surprise. So for all of you, uh, what are your takeaways from this approval? Ooh. <laughs> I, I mean, I think, um, you know, we've emphasized this in Sue's package and in our coverage before, but the um, the, the two words are regulatory flexibility, you know, and FDA really going all in on that. Um, the question, you know, one of the questions, I guess, going forward is kind of like, how does that apply to other drugs or other disease areas? And sort of how do you wrap your mind around what substantial evidence means <laughs> sort of in in this sort of universe um you know and reading sort of some of the quotes sue highlighted in her story um i guess like i have sort of a hard time totally wrapping my head around like did did this drug meet the substantial evidence standard because the substantial evidence standard is a bit different in this disease space or did it like not quite meet it but that's okay in this disease space I you know it just I think like one I was um, listening to a panel yesterday about you know restoring trust in the FDA and I think one thing that becomes very confusing for you know the public and patients and people with different diseases who you know are want treatments is kind of like you know they're there is this sort of art to the FDA approval standard where value judgments and so forth get incorporated. And that's kind of hard for FDA to explain and, um, you know, explain <laughs> to people and how that applies. And I think that's sort of a little bit of what we are seeing here is like there's the science part of it. And then there's this sort of value judgment of what um, how you sort of take the science and consider it given, you know, disease state and so forth. Yeah, it, it and if I know it, it feels like a moving target, you know, with the 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 standard because it, you know it, the more you try and figure out where where the bar is, the more you see the bar kind of all over the place. But you know, it, it, for some for some diseases though, I mean, it it I mean you know, like ALS especially, you know, the FDA rightly is willing to take a little more risk or have a little more uncertainty because there's not that much out there as opposed to something like on the other extreme, like headaches, you know, but um, 
I, yeah, I'm I'm with you. I, I get you know I could see both ends of this argument where you're like, yeah, you want a treatment out there that's you know that looks like it's it's promising and and probably uh, does something, especially with ALS. You can't reverse you know regression once it's once it's happened and you know, but on the other hand, you don't want people buying something and taking something that doesn't work at all. So you know you want a little bit of certainty on that end too. You know, it struck me that this is also setting up a situation that is a little reminiscent of Adjuhelm and that payers are going to have to make decisions on the data and decide about coverage. They're going to get a lot of pressure from patients, of course, to cover it, but the the list price is, is high. It's $150,000 um, and people, patients currently are using this combination you know, that they're putting together themselves or buying, you know, the supplement part of it online and taking it and paying much less. So, you know, the question will be, is it, are payers going to think it's worth it um, to cover? Yeah, I think the difference here, obviously, or a few of the differences with Adjuhelm is, you know, it's a much smaller patient population. Perhaps mm-hmm. to some extent, there might be be, I mean, this is a full approval, right? It's not an accelerated approval and not a a um, controversial use of accelerated approval at that. Mm-hmm. Um, so even though there's sort of uncertainty about the data, perhaps it will be seen as a little bit more certain than Adjuhelm's. The other thing here is that you know, the, the phase three trial is closer to, you know, reading out results so we should at least like have better sense of what happens now so i mean happens sooner so i that could impact this but yeah i do think um where they set the price is gonna is gonna get a certain amount of scrutiny particularly like you mentioned kathy if is there other ways to get it available and is this a little bit of a you know a a gaming of how you take old products and repurpose them We've seen it in rare diseases before. I mean, it, um, um, Duchenne muscular dystrophy. There was a there was a product, and it was largely I want to say it was largely imported and uh, under like special FDA you know um, allowance for that. And then a company got it got an FDA approval for it and jacked up the price compared to what they were paying to import it from you know, wherever it was, I think it was Europe somewhere. But yeah, you know, I mean, this could be the same type of situation where you're, you know, you're saying why, you know, your people are asking why they're paying X amount more compared to what it was, what it was costing before. Yeah. And uh, McKenna, which uh, FDA will be uh, revisiting in just a few weeks uh, um, at an advisor committee as they try and uh, um, move that product accelerated approval is uh, another example of that uh, Situation in which a uh, a product that had been available, sort of kind of uh, um, uh, without FDA approval, uh, uh, got FDA approval, and then uh, uh, you know became very expensive. And uh, there specifically, there was sort of kind of a um, you know a clear regulatory uh, um, solution to that uh, to that price, where it's uh, that, that they uh, um, essentially allowed uh, um, enforcement flexibility again on compounding and. Uh, um, you know, much to the uh, um, the sponsor's uh, uh, detriment, really, and sort of it's uh, that product has not uh, uh, succeeded commercially as uh, the sponsors had hoped, and uh, also doesn't seem to have uh, succeeded clinically as uh, um, 
folks should hope because the confirmatory trial uh, uh, failed in part because uh, um, sponsors say that the um, the mix of patients uh, became different because it was available, uh, um, uh, you know, following the accelerated approval. Uh, you know, here, um, you know, it's a it's a full approval, so there won't uh, um, be an automatic uh, um, way to uh, revisit revisit the question. Uh, um, and uh, you know, there's some question as to whether uh, um, you know people even drop out of the phase three uh, trial now that this is available. You know, regulators in other countries, uh, you know, may uh, um, have some more leverage to get the trial done. And uh, the way it was designed is that uh, um, uh, patients are mostly enrolled already in the U.S. and uh, um, you know, it'll sort of uh, end up being completed out outside. So uh, um, it's a good example of sort of kind of how to get that uh, confirmatory data, you know, after FDA approval. But uh, um, as everyone was saying, there are these sort of kind of multiple uh, dimensions to uh, the uh, um, approval question. I was trying to think of the analogy. There's sort of kind of is it X, Y, and Z axis, and this sort of kind of there's a there's a focus question. Obviously, sort of kind of you got to um, risk and benefit on sort of kind of the, the uh, the classic grid, you can plot that. Um, and then the question is, sort of kind of, you know, given the risk and benefits, sort of is the severity, the severity of the disease, or maybe the, the z-axis there, sort of kind of how do you, how do you plot that? And then there's the uh, other question of sort of kind of the, um, do we actually know what the data is? And sort of kind of here, these sort of the, uh, the focus question is, is, is perhaps as important as everything, uh, everything else. And, uh, um, you know, there's no uh, clear formula to plot that because, uh, um, even as much as sponsor would like, I think the uh, the big question is the uh, the fuzziness of the data sometimes, and you know the uh, the quadrant might be able to be uh, defined in guidance, although it's never quite defined uh, numerically in the way that uh, um, you would perhaps kind of uh, give absolute clarity in uh, um, development. But uh, um, you know, it's will it will again uh, um, always come down to judgment calls on the uh, the regulators' part. Yeah, can we also talk about this this the the road to approval in just the last year for this product i mean just looking at the the timeline the nda was submitted in october of 2021 on march 30th this year the advisory committee voted that the data the data did not establish efficacy then the committee meets again on september 7th and votes there is evidence of efficacy and then on september 29th the drug is approved that that's like a out of you know the roller coaster ride of roller coaster rides crammed into what what is that less than you know probably 12 months i don't think we I don't, I don't know if we've seen something like that before yeah i mean the other thing um i forgot if we mentioned this earlier it was like initially fda told them right they didn't really have enough data to submit and nda and then sort of reverse course and encouraged them to submit so there's been a lot of um kind of conflicting <laughs> opinions from the fda in this process including i mean even in the run-up to the latest advisory committee the preview documents did not necessarily indicate to me that fda was ready to approve this drug that the um so i i do sort of wonder if there was you know some internal agency disagreement and perhaps i don't know if we'll end up seeing that in any of the documents they post moving forward about the approval. But, um, you know, the, the the preview documents didn't necessarily lead you to believe FDA thought this 
drug, even with the new analyses, have met the standard for approval. And then we get to the advisory committee meeting and Billy Dunn, the head of you know the FDA drugs office that reviews neurological medicines, gave a big speech about regulatory flexibility. And he made some caveats that, you know, but, I mean, we haven't quite decided whether we should approve this drug, even though he seemed to really be bending backwards to kind of say, you know, they would like to figure out, like, can they get to yes on this? I think it seemed like they sort of took his product. In some ways, it's felt like to me at times they took a product and said, we want to approve this. How can we approve it instead of like deciding whether it was like truly approvable? Um, so I don't know. Like I said, it'll be interesting to me if there any, ends up being any um, any sense in anything else that comes out here or you know, that not everyone on the FDA was on the same page because it, it didn't seem like, you know, they were quite ready to, to or at least everybody who had a look at all, the whole application had to say there, had to, wanted to say yes, that is, sorry. Yeah, it's an, it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing that, you know, we've seen this now, we're, we're, we're seeing this kind of, uh, you know, I don't know if it's, it's not posture, opinion, maybe among people in the FDA, some people in the FDA, um, where they feel like, you know, we, like you said, Sarah, like, we want to approve this, how can we do that? And, you you know, there's a bunch of reasons for that. Um, you know, we've heard, we've heard, you know, various uh, discussions about, you know, trying to push, keep the field moving forward with research and so forth, and, you know, and, and that kind of thing. We've heard, you know, this the 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 whole unmet need argument that you know something needs to be um, something needs to be approved, but it's a yeah it's a really interesting kind of um, you know dynamic to watch here as we go forward, which by the way leads me to our next discussion, which is another dis- devastating disease in the neurology space that's looking for treatments, and that's Alzheimer's. Biogen and Isai's Alzheimer's drug lecanemab showed promise in top-line results from the Clarity AD trial, which showed a significant reduction in decline among patients who took the drug. The company's planned an aggressive regulatory strategy. The agency has set a January 6th user fee goal for accelerated approval of the product, but they plan to submit for full approval by the end of March 2023. If the dates line up, the conversion from full approval to accelerated approval could be unusually fast. That plan also could potentially remove some hurdles to Medicare coverage. Kathy, you looked at this for us. It seems like this could be a test of kind of efforts to improve FDA and CMS communications, maybe? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think I think there will be some you know evidence of whether that's happening um, in the outcome here. But you know this the this promising data really sets and and the company's regulatory plans set do set the stage for a test of CMS's pledge when it established the current restrictions on Medicare coverage that it would be willing to change, you know, to rescind the restrictions if if good data comes forward um, for a traditionally approved drug. And it looks like lecanemab is going to, you know, make that case. I mean, they said that once they get the traditional approval, they will go to CMS to seek a reversal. And just as a reminder, for traditionally approved drugs, Medicare will only cover uh, will only cover them if patients are enrolled in a re- real world evidence collection, like a patient registry, um, which doesn't sound terrible, but most stakeholders do feel that that would be 
quite an onerous uh, requirement and it would you know restrict access pretty significantly um, you know when cms established the restrictions um Agile home was the only drug on the market and they got a lot there was a lot of criticism about you know sort of the disconnect between what the way cms viewed the data and fda's approval it was an accelerated approval but approval for Agihelm and that cms and fda should have been more on the same page so it does seem very likely that they will be talking about you know lecanemab and have been and that cms will be better prepared to make a decision hopefully you know as quickly as they claim to to be able to um, when uh, ASI and Biogen uh, request a reversal. Um, generally, it, it, it has taken them, CMS, nine months to um, revise a national coverage determination, which I'm sure patients would feel is, is just too long um, in this case. So it's kind of a weird question, but would would CMS necessarily care how quickly they moved from accelerated to full approval? Like if, you know, the, the, if this happens really quickly, hmm. w would that raise flags with the CMS people that are that are looking at this or no? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't think so. I, I mean, my guess is that they would just focus on the data. Um, and, you know, I guess we should remember that these were top line results that were announced mm -hmm. on whatever Tuesday. Um, the full results are going to come out um, in late November. And, you know, it'll be important then to see the full results and also, you know, a, a peer reviewed, um, the, you know, going through the peer review process, I think will be important for CMS as well. Seems like there's a lot of. Um after the initial excitement, there was like a step back from a lot of people in the Alzheimer's space to say, okay, how like clinically meaningful is the improvement seen in yeah. their trial? And that seems like a big open question um, for this drug, you know, and I mean, we all certainly know that you can kind of hit statistical significance and not have a benefit that's really meaningful into in, in terms of how patients disease progresses so I think yeah there's I, like a little bit of cautious optimism there right I've, I've heard that too one interesting dynamic is uh if we assume that the uh results are indeed as uh um exciting as uh, uh people thought they were uh, um you know based on sort of the uh, the top line numbers there will be this gap uh, um even if it's just a few months between you know what we uh, uh, we could expect would be FDA accelerated approval and then you know FDA full approval during which time um, there won't be any reimbursement from CMS unless you're in a you know full blown clinical trial there and uh, that could uh, create uh, a fair bit of pressure on uh, um, on the agency I would think if uh, um, you know the uh, the results do hold up once uh, all the data is out there, and uh, um, you know uh, if people remain as excited as they uh, as they were, it could be uh, um, fairly uh, um, difficult for uh, CMS to maintain the uh, the idea that uh, no, no, we have to wait uh, um, for this uh, next step to sort of kind of uh, to get uh, broader access. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so the, this phase three trial, I mean. I wonder if if the current phase three trial could serve as, you know, the evidence generator that 
CMS would be looking for. Um, at that point, would there be some kind of a extension of the trial that would still be going on? I mean, it would still be a very limited population. It would be, you know, whoever is in the trial, but but that's a good point. Um, Matt. That's definitely something to try to sort out. It sounds like motivation to get, you know, to get the trial enrolled and, and done to me, you know, it, it is, and I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if you got a whole lot of interest of people getting in the trial. I mean, I know, you know, there's limited spots and not everybody has access to a clinical trial. In fact, a lot of people don't have access to clinical trials these days, but, you know, if they can, if they can, you know, figure out ways to make it, you know, maybe if they can make it a little easier to get, um, you know, people who aren't at the, you know, the big academic medical centers or something to get, you know, to get in it, they could probably enroll it really quick. I'm just going to say it did sound like um, the companies are going to wait until after the traditional approval to seek a revision. You know, there was there was not talk about um, pursuing that after an accelerated approval. So, yeah, you wonder how that sort of gap in time is going to play out. Yeah, and then, you know, even uh, while they uh, seek the revision, they will still have to sort of, uh, um, you know, create this uh, real evidence uh, um, data collection, you know, registry, what have you. It's, you know, a lower bar than a uh, um, uh, uh, an active uh, controlled clinical trial, but there will still be, uh, um, you know, some uh, um, some uh, some barriers to uh, to access uh, via that uh, um, mm-hmm. that additional uh, requirement, to, even if they uh, feel confident they can get uh, CMS reverse themselves. There will be another sort of uh, um, you know period of uh, uh, more restrained access that, uh, um, you know, and if there are stories about, uh, you know, how, uh, you know, a patient couldn't get it because they couldn't find a physician that was uh, um, you know, using this uh, registry or uh, um, the other data collection system that they set up, uh, you know, that, that could itself sort of kind of create pressure on uh, um, on CMS. Uh, I also think there, there could be this uh, um, emerging dynamic, not just in uh, Alzheimer's, but uh, you know, in ALS, as we were mentioning, sort of kind of there's, you know, some concern about uh, phase three dropouts now that this, uh, um, uh, the drug is approved, that with FDA, uh, you know, we're seeing them in oncology making a big push to uh, ensure that uh, uh, clinical trials, uh, you know, reflect the diversity of the U.S. population. And, uh, you know, there's sort of guidance more broadly on that uh, um, as well. Um, so you'd have this dynamic in which, you uh, you know, companies would need to, you know, perhaps be doing trials in the U.S. in a, um, in a way that's sort of kind of gathered the data that's sort of kind of FDA thought was, uh, you know, appropriate for the uh, U.S. population. But then if they're at the same time rushing to uh, get study, uh, get these studies, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, or get these products uh, approved, you know, there's, there's, there's always attention to sort of com- com- completing the trial. So it uh, will really start to uh, behoove sponsors to uh, um, either sort of kind of very carefully design the trials, like uh, um, the Phoenix trial was designed sort of kind of to uh, enroll U.S. patients first and then sort of kind of European patients uh, afterwards, or to make sure that uh, these uh, confirmatory trials are, uh, you know, just uh, only shortly behind the uh, the uh, the initial trials so that there's not that sort of kind of gap and risk of uh, of dropouts if they're really sort of having to, uh, you know, enroll a, US, a more U.S. style population in their uh, confirmatory studies. 
at the same time, too, like we were mentioning with uh, ALS, the public pressure is going to ramp up now. Now that we've seen this top line data, that's so, you know, that's so promising, um, I guess is the is the word. Um, you know, the, there's going to be patient groups that are lining up saying, you know, approve it, approve it, approve it. And, you know, we've seen this before, too, where there's been really good top line data. And then as soon as the rest of it comes out, all of a sudden, you know, the 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 promise kind of goes away or, you know, at least is diminished somewhat so or a lot. So, um, you know, the FDA is going to be under a lot of pressure here to kind of to move fast, which, you know, I don't know if that's going to be a good or a bad thing. You know, also, as far as uh, CMS goes, it's a, a patient group that I spoke to um, about the story was was very pessimistic that that CMS would rescind the the um, restrictions in well at all or in a timely way. And so, you know, we, I guess the other thing to watch for is there there will be probably legislation introduced to you know force CMS to change this decision in some way. And I'm sure there's going to be litigation too. Um, not that either of those avenues would produce a quicker result, but I think I think you know they they will be coming. They would they would you mean you mean legislation that would say in this specific case get rid of this requirement that you put in? I think it could be. Yeah, that's a bad yeah, or, or, or <laughs> just change how the you know coverage decisions or you know uh, um, the evidence development. Uh, process could be used to uh, um, limit access in that way. It could change it more. Yeah, that, do you that think that do you think that legislation, Kathy, will um, the legis legislation that might make it harder for CMS not to cover this or cover this widely, does the likelihood we get that change depending on how they price this product? Because that, that seems like there's that's th that could be a tension point for Congress in terms of people probably are going to want their constituents to have access to this drug, mm -hmm. but I mean, Alzheimer's is a huge population and the yeah. burden to Medicare and taxpayers could be quite substantial too. Well, it could be, of course, CMS denies that cost was a factor here, but I think a lot of stakeholders are convinced that it was, and and that's really why they, they don't think CMS is going to change the decision. But I think there might be other ways legislation could could address this situation, for example, you know, maybe uh, saying that CMS isn't allowed to impose these national decisions on a class, that they would have to do it sort of drug by drug. And, you know, the the drug sponsors in this case have been talking about that for a long time. Um, you know, Lily saying our drug is better, our study is going to be better, our results are going to be better, so we shouldn't be tarred with the same brush. <laughs> so that there could be other ways of sort of maybe changing the NCD process that would, you know, directly impact this situation. But that would also create basically another uh, layer of uh, re review for a product. Uh, um, you know, once it goes through uh, FDA, it would have to go through uh, uh, CMS on sort of kind of a, uh, you know, a moiety by a moiety basis, uh, depending on sort of what the structure of the legislation has in mind for uh, um, for that. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, they, there haven't been that many of these decisions for drugs, but CMS did take the same approach for CAR T's. You know, it it did they did come out with a national decision for all CAR T's. So it would be, you know, yeah, it would be a change. Yeah, I imagine more that sort of kind of would have to uh, 
the legislation uh, um, would probably more say that sort of, you have to sort of uh, do what FDA says. I suspect uh, that would uh, be how they would uh, would structure it. Maybe, yeah. Yeah, either way, it's going to be an, an interesting time here as we go forward. Once yeah. again, as we, you know, as this, as this, and we kind of watch this, uh, this product come, you know, um, finish up its uh, clinical uh, research portions. Finally, we're going to look at maybe one of our favorite subjects on the podcast in recent weeks, price negotiation. Kathleen, you wrote a story about how CMS is starting to build its organization that will implement this program. Um, it sounds like they're bringing in a lot of expertise to do this? Well, yeah, it sounds like it. Um, Jonathan Blom, who is the deputy uh, assistant administrator and also chief operating officer at CMS, did an um, inter interesting interview um, earlier this week with Health Affairs, or late last week. And he did talk about implementing the, the program, which is going to be a, a really huge undertaking for CMS. They've never done anything like this before. You know, right now, Part B uh, reimbursement is based on manufacturer-reported average sales prices. So, you know, CMS just sort of takes that data, and that's what they pay, plus 6%. So the idea of them, you know, setting up a system for evaluating drugs and attaching a price to it is a really big change. Um, they, yeah, Blum did say they've been bringing in people with expertise in negotiating prices with manufacturers in the commercial insurance market. Um, and, you know, seen reports that they're bringing in a lot of people, you know, over 90 um, to staff this new program. You know, they're going to have to learn how to engage with manufacturers in negotiation and, you know, um, figure out how to request the right data, what to do with the data that they get. You know, there there are some instructions in the law about what data manufacturers are supposed to provide, including, you know, what they spent on R&D, um, how much of a drug's development was paid for by taxpayers. <laughs> and then also um, CMS is going to consider therapeutic alternatives and do some kind of a comparative effectiveness analysis um, between, you know, the the drug and um, therapeutic alternatives, which of course they haven't done either. And that should be a, an interesting um, process. So um, Blum also said, although the, the program will start small, um, they, they're going to, you know, build it so that it's, it's scalable. And that's because, you know, in the first year, only 10 drugs will be um, negotiated second and third years, it'll be 15 each year. And then after that, it'll be 20 per year, but these will be cumulative. So, you know, these prices will um, remain in, in effect. And so this program is going to expand. And of course, that's something that really worries manufacturers. Um, they're also worried that, you know, once this this sort of infrastructure is established, there could be um, opportunity in the future to look for more savings for Medicare by by negotiating prices at launch. And that's, um, you know, these the drugs that are going to be subject now are older drugs with no competition, you know, but at least manufacturers are not, you know, facing price controls at launch. But they are worried about that, that that could, that could happen. So it, it was also kind of interesting in the interview Blum talked about 
being um, early in his career, he was a staffer on Capitol Hill when the Medicare Part D legislation was being drafted, and he found that experience very um, important, you know, learning all, learning about building a new program like that. And he expressed, you know, he said he was energized at the prospect of doing it um, in this case and looking forward to the challenge. So I thought that was sort of an interesting uh, perspective on how he's going to approach it. So I hadn't quite uh, appreciated sort of the uh, extra special burden on sponsors that this uh, um, is going to uh, provide in terms of sort of, kind of how they have to provide data, not just on, uh, you know, the clinical uh, um you know, value of the uh, the product, which they've been doing with uh, um, private payers, but sort of the, the um, calculating the um, the the R and D that uh, um, is you know certainly sort of something that they have uh, um, you know uh, internally in, internally uh, uh, um, uh, you know when they're uh, um, uh, estimating sort of kind of how to go forward with things, but uh, um, how to uh, compile that and. Uh, um, you know, account for it and sort of kind of, you know, you know, how much of, uh, you know, the cost of the uh, rent of this office, uh, you know, went into the uh, development of this uh, product and stuff like this that they may sort of not uh, um, have sliced out in their own, uh, you know, internal development plans. They will probably be incentivized to slice out in their uh, presentations of CMS. And so sort of kind of the, uh, the gamesmanship behind uh, that will be interesting. I don't know, you know, it's not going to make or break the price for, uh, CMS, I suppose, but uh, um, to the extent that uh, um, CMS wants it, they're sort of they're going to want it to be valid, and sort of kind of uh, you can see perhaps some arguments about sort of kind of uh, you know what the actual uh, R and D cost ended up being, even if that uh, doesn't end up uh, moving the needle on the uh, the price CMS uh, um, pays for uh, um, pays for something. So uh, that'll be a, yeah um, uh, yeah. Um, another uh, another burden on uh, on sponsors to to do uh, um, as this process goes forward. Yeah, well, I'm sure that you know there there will be more specifics on you know how that information should be prepared and presented in hopefully in regulation. I mean the you know there is sort of you know a, a general uh, outline of what the data should be, but hopefully things will be fleshed out more. Um, as we go along. Another thing manufacturers are supposed to provide is the current unit cost of production, which is kind of funny because you you know, you know, can see them worrying about how prices could basically be set to cover their costs, their production costs. Right, right. So that could be another area where they might wanna, I don't know, look at look at the way they present those numbers. Well, yeah, I would, I would think they would have to kind of tell you know at least put in some kind of regular in the regulations or somewhere like some detail on what counts as an r&d cost and what doesn't because you could mm-hmm. you could theoretically say you know me thinking about it you know on saturday afternoon while i'm watching a football game is yeah. a billable hour that goes to r&d costs i mean you know right. I, which yeah you, since all the you know so yeah i don't that that'll be interesting to see how that's kind of um you know, like you said, flushed out and you know, what the if there are limits on what what can be counted and what can't be counted. Uh, I was also curious about, you know, I mean, obviously, the, you know, the federal government doesn't have much of a bench to kind of go to to help them build this. Um, I mean, you know, v, the VA does some negotiations, but I don't know, if, you know, whether how, how they, you know, whether they could just poach all those people over to CMS to, you know, to build this program for them. But yeah. Is it is it concerning that they're going to basically have to go to industry 
you know, to kind of build this program. I mean, they don't want to feel like they're being steamrolled by industry when they're setting this up. Yeah. I I mean, it seems like sort of an obvious move to me. Um, Blum, Blum worked in commercial insurance between his two stints at CMS. He, he also was at CMS in, in the Obama administration, and then he went to Care First, Blue Cross Blue Shield. So he probably has some exposure, maybe connections in the um, industry that he could tap. But um, you know, otherwise, yeah, I mean, there's there there wouldn't be any internal expertise there that they could draw on. So I, I, you know, I guess it's not surprising. And I would think academia is probably, you know, there's academia on this, but I don't know. If yeah, that's kind of what you need necessarily. Yeah, I could I could see them that that being a resource, though. I mean, there are some um, health policy people who have been following you know, this really closely and who know a lot of the ins and outs about Medicare coverage. And um, I'm sure they'll, they'll, you know, play a role too. Another interesting thing to watch as we move forward. Well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this and previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to Drug Fix. I'm Derek Ingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith, Kathy Kelly, and Matt Hobbs. Stay safe, get vaccinated, and we'll see you next time.